Welcome to another episode of The Art of Outreach. My name is Mike Mitchell, and I'm the art director of Mount Pleasant Schools here in historically rural Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. I'm also the director of community outreach for the Tennessee Art Education Association. Really excited about our guest today, Brickell Deck. Brickell, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. So nice to be here with you. So in our pre-interview, you blew my mind by telling me that you have 1,000 350 students spread over two schools. Yes, that is a very large number of students that I come in contact with, for sure. You teach at the Wallace A. Smith School and the Wolf Tiber Creek. Both of those are elementary schools, or is one ele- They're both elementary schools. And is that yes. K-4 or K-5 there in Hamilton County? Um, I teach K-5, um, and at one school I also teach pre-K. Wow. Okay. So pre-K through fifth grade, um, over two schools. Um, so you guys are near Chattanooga, like a suburb of Chattanooga. Um, and you're, you're saying that you grew up in Tennessee and then you're also a product of Tennessee tech. So that leads to my next question. Like why art education? Oh, that's a very large question. Um, So looking back at my earliest art experiences, I've always been a really curious learner um, with an interest in making. Um, From MS Paint on school computers to decorative mud pies, uh, I grew up pretty low below the poverty line. So I spent a lot of my time reading and drawing because I didn't have a lot of toys. Um, I didn't even have electricity until I was nine. And I didn't have any siblings either. So therefore, I spent a lot of my time um, making art, and that's what kept me in my high spirits. Um, I tended to be a little bit of a hoarder. So I would find something like an empty tape dispenser roll or a plastic spoon or gift wrapping paper, and I would always ask to bring it home and try to make something out of it. And I was like constantly observing my world through this lens. Uh, And I would see art or products and say to myself, oh, I could make that. Um, And I don't think I ever stopped saying that to myself. Uh, I also really enjoyed learning almost all the subjects in school, um, minus maybe math. Um, But I felt like when I was creating in some way, I was kind of reaching my higher self. like I felt like I was being true to myself and when I was playing an instrument or I was dancing or I was painting, all of those things were like the best moments um, of my childhood. And then I think as I started to approach high school, my grandparents kind of pushed me into um, entering into the medical field and that wasn't really something I had ever had an interest in. Um, I had support from a few key teachers that really pushed me to do something that I loved, which was making art, but I never really had seen the demand for it um, until my own teacher, my art teacher um, in some Memorial High School pushed me to volunteer at the Appalachian Center for Craft, um, where I taught some uh, students how to make these clay rabbits. And I remember this moment where one of the artists in residence walked up to me afterwards and she told me how she thought I was 
really good at explaining things to these kids and very enthusiastic and patient with the hundreds of children that walked through that building that day. And I think that was the first time that I really thought to myself, hmm, like maybe this is an opportunity for me. Uh, so when I went to college, my skills and my philosophy really started to grow and I realized interacting with kids in the classroom was something that really spoke to me. And making those deep connections with students um, and like helping them develop their own identity and expression. Um, I really loved to encourage them to understand that their choices and their point of view were really important and valuable. Because uh, that was something I think that my educational experience lacked until I did go to college. Um, I really just wanted to facilitate that thirst for learning and exploration that I had when I was younger. I kind of believe that like high quality education not only feeds our soul, but teaches us like these creative and divergent thinking skills that can be used as tools to develop, you know, and solve problems that address personal needs, community needs and the world at large. So uh, to sum up, I would say, speaking of Dr. Jeremy Blair, I remember this moment that I was sitting with him in class and I had my journal in front of me and he caught me, he stopped me mid-sentence and he said, I want you to write that down. And I had said, um, I really want them to teach me what art is. And I think that that's something that I still really stand behind. Um, it's kind of like maybe my whole philosophy behind teaching. So that idea of student-centered to the point of um, like a mantra. Yeah. Like I want, I really want them to teach me what art is, is really fantastic. You said that your art teacher in high school, who was that teacher? Uh, Dale Safdie. I believe she still teaches at Stone Memorial High School. What's the high school? Stone Memorial. Okay, and that's in, where's that at? That's in Crossville, Tennessee. Oh, wow, Stone Memorial. That's really cool. I'm going to reach out to her. Maybe she can. we can get her on the podcast. Um, awesome. It'd be so cool. Um, and so that you know, like I got a million questions from that, um, that unbelievably eloquent um, answer to that first question of why art education. One of them was, do you remember who the visiting artist was at the Appalachia Center for Craft when you were making clay rabbits? And if you don't remember that, did you pick making clay rabbits or you got there as a high school kid and they're like, hey, kid, we're going to make a bunch of clay rabbits and you've got to help us? That is basically what happened. And I definitely came in contact with a lot of new people that day. So unfortunately, I don't believe I can recall her name. Okay. Um, the director of the clay program there was there that day as well. That would be Helka. I'm sorry, that's our bell here at Mount Pleasant Middle School of the Visual and Performing Arts. It comes on every day at 4 o'clock, even though we don't have kids in the building. Um, who, who, was the, um, who was the director of Clay? That would be Vince Patelka. Okay. I just, I'm always interested in how one person, right, even if you don't remember them, and it's not that you were being a bad high school student, you were dealing with hundreds of kids, Right. And you did not process 
what that visiting artist said immediately it just started the conversation of like all of those eloquent things you said in your in the conversation but i love how one person who you certainly would have valued at the time as a high school student like whoa look at them they're awesome i'm helping them do this thing that they would come and be kind to you and generous enough to say hey you're good at this and how right. that can change you and your kind of perception of, um, you know, they facilitate, to use your own language, they facilitated your thirst for learning, right? Like, and it, but it didn't happen in your classroom, right? It didn't happen in your, where you said you lacked it kind of basically until college. It is interesting that there were a couple of those like lifelines for a kid like you. Um, I'm also the same way I grew up in uh, below the poverty line for much of my, not all of my education, but lo like lots of it, especially in like a rural area. And I remember making the Millennium Falcon out of a pizza box. And I don't think I had any less fun. I'm guessing there are a lot of scientific studies showing I probably had more fun with that pizza box and probably like pushed my brain around in a different way than if had I had the like, like the Mattel, like Millennium Falcon that was coming. And so, yeah. so that's interesting. So you're, uh, D Dale Safley encouraged you to volunteer, which kind of brings me to this idea. Was that something that she did consistently in her classroom? Is that like the idea of outreach? Did she push that or was that a? Yeah. So one, this kind of sparked my entire interest in the Appalachian Center for Craft. When I was in high school, um, I think maybe even starting freshman year, um, she would do an annual field trip there because Smithville was about 45 minutes away. Um, and she would bring her students there and we would be able to join workshops. Um, so I began uh, going there a few times, so I had taken probably six art classes uh, by the time I graduated high school, and um, I had been there quite a few times and uh, had started, you know, getting to know the people that worked there, and so she suggested um, that I and maybe one or two other students go there for the celebration of Craft Day, which is probably the Appalachian Center for Craft. That's their biggest day for sales um, and community awareness. So that was kind of like their big movement to uh, say, hey, we're in this community. Um, we're super isolated over here, but come check out what we've got going on. And um, she just encouraged me to drive up there and volunteer because she thought my skills would be useful. So um, I wouldn't say that she did that for all of her students, but she, that was something you know, she trusted me with doing. Yeah. And I think that's an, uh, another part of it, right. Is like we, you know, everything doesn't have to be to scale, right? Like she probably did other things for other students that she didn't do for you. Right. Like when you're at, especially at that high school level, once you get to know, um, no kids, right. You, you just, you try to meet them all where they're at. You try to differentiate that learning and differentiate like what opportunities are. And it sounds like she knew that that's something that you could handle, would go there and wouldn't get overwhelmed and not have a good experience because you don't want to position a kid poorly by sending someone who doesn't have the skill set to a place where they're going to be 
um, professional artists that need you to actually be able to handle 200 kids or a couple hundred kids. Um, right. How have you translated as a teacher? I know it's only you're in your third year, um, and that's including this year, which is a weird year, just like that's the understatement of 2020 is that this is only a weird year. But how has how have those opportunities like – doing stuff kind of outside of class or just encouraging kids to think about art as a tool of outreach, how does that manifest itself in your classroom or in your philosophy? So I would say there's a couple different things that I have begun to explore. Um, Nothing that I've really made my way back to. Um, And then there are a bunch of things that I probably had planned for this year um, that have kind of fallen through the cracks. Uh, To start with, I would say I really, really fought at my schools to get um, some after-school programs started, and elementary art was new to both of my schools. Neither of my principals have ever had, like, an elementary art teacher at their school. It was a new program, and so I was kind of building it from the ground up, and I thought it was really important because I was only there half the time. And those students didn't get to have me as much as they really deserved to, to have some after-school art programs. So I have a K through second um, program and then a third through fifth program. And those students get to come in and I'll provide them with maybe some extra special materials or just give them studio time or time to ask me questions. Um, And then on top of that, I am also involved in probably one of the best elementary musical teams that there are out there. And um, that is run by um, the music teacher at Wallace A. Smith. His name is Dustin Dotzler, um, and he is awesome. And I was a part of set design and in charge of that whole area. So I had... um, gotten together a team of students that I knew really needed a little bit of extra push um, and then anyone else who wanted to volunteer with me so we were building props and painting murals for these really awesome spectacular shows Um, and then in addition to that I've done a few other things Um, I've done some collaboration across um, other classrooms so With my fourth grade last year, I was doing something really awesome um, where we have started sewing felt fish. And these fish were all Tennessee River fish, which is the river that's really close to where we live. Um, It's also the most polluted river in the country. And so we were trying to bring awareness to that subject, and we were talking about food webs with their fourth grade teachers. And I also reached out to Harrison Bay State Park and uh, the Tennessee Aquarium, and I had guest speakers from both of those places come into my classroom and talk to the kids a little bit about their local ecosystems. And then we all got to work together on these really awesome felt fish. Um, And then we were able to present them to the community on a day of innovation, which is a day where like the whole community was able to get together and talk about um, art from different schools and see all of these different amazing exhibits and participate in art, um, kind of like a celebratory day at the end of the year. And then, um, you know, 
there have been a few other things, touch and go here and there. Uh, one thing I really wanted to do this year was I wanted to be able to invite some local artists into my classroom and have them talk about their practice. Uh, but things just haven't returned to normal enough yet for me to be able to even allow them in our building. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can do that soon. So I think um, I heard you say that kind of to sum that up, part of your outreach is just advocating for art in general at these two schools who have started to the process of really valuing art in, which is really good in that they've, they've brought art to their building. But you've said, hey, that's really great, but like not enough, right? Like, like I want to do it more, right? So, and so your, your outreach is even just in extending the the service that you're able to offer kids just more at a school where you're only there. Um, you're two days a week at Wolf Tiber Creek, right? And then, so are you three at Wallace A. Smith? Yes. Yeah. And so you're able to just at either of those, you're just, you're just saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to outreach. I'm going to, I'm going to just make myself available even more through these after school programs. And then it sounds like you're really doing science, technology, engineering, art, math. You're doing STEAM projects in relationship to this fourth grade, which sounds like a project-based learning unit, or at least that's what we call it in our county, um, by doing these um, felt fish, which sound awesome. I would love to see them. And how cool is it that you're showing students how art can bring awareness and bring about change and starting conversations about the environment? and about us reclaiming our river through these things that we're creating in our class. So I need to connect you to my friend, Greg Schlanger, who um, teaches, taught forever in Tennessee for 20 years, and then now is at University of Central Washington. And he did a, um, a huge project about the sockeye salmon and the disappearance of the sockeye salmon and made sculptures along the edge of the river out of plywood, and again, physically making these things that didn't go into the water, but that were about the water and helped um, bring back, literally helped the conversation of bringing back those um, fish. Cause in 90, in 1996, only one returned to Redfish Lake, like one single fish. And, there, and, and, and now there are millions again. So, um, and him, he got to be part of that conversation of people saying, hey, this isn't something that we want to lose. We don't want to lose these species of fish, but if, if they're not there, they're underwater, they're invisible, right? So your kids have to make them visible by making them present in their class. It's not something that we are, it's not something that is normally passing through our mind when we see the surface of the water. We're not thinking about all the life in there. We're not thinking about all the trash in there. Um, so it was really good way to start conversation and to make connections in our own community with those people. Um, it was really, it was almost a valuable, more a valuable experience, I think, for me as an educator than it even was for my students. Well, you said from the beginning, you want them to teach you what art is, right? And so, and that can be like, art can be environmental like advocacy, right? Art can be these other things. It's so wise of you. I'm wondering if where that comes from, if it's something that you learned from Jeremy Blair or other professors at Tennessee Tech. It's something that I always encourage um, art educators to do. It's something that I both was pushed to do, but also kind of learned on my own to do, 
which was collaborating outside of my art classroom with other um, classes, kind of before someone tells you what STEAM is or STEM is, just to know that it's important to build culture in your building and not be the wacky art teacher and not be the person that the other faculty go like, who is this person that I'm going to have to like manage, but others, but to like that part of that, um, why it's so wise is that if you can build a third grade math teacher or a third grade science teacher or a fifth grade um, social studies teacher, if they value the art teacher, that's some of the most important art advocacy you can do for your building because they have conversations with people in the community, with principals. So where did you get that, those smarts from? Well, I would say, yes, it is a little bit about um, Jeremy Blair. I wouldn't say that he specifically told me to do that, um, but he really always emphasized whatever I wanted my program to be, I had this really awesome opportunity where there's never been anything previous at either of these schools. Um, so really dream big and, and make it what you want it to be. And a lot of people didn't really understand that we even had an art teacher until I started to put on shows and, you know, host these nights and events at the school. Um, we had a steam night at Wallace and I was so over the top excited the first year that I taught I was like yes this is exactly what I want to show you um, you know there are all of these awesome resources that you can incorporate I loved learning about engineering and like I love mechanical things I tried to bring some of those things that he showed me into the classroom and some additional stuff like we made the art bots and some squishy circuits I think all of those things are really fascinating and they they hook those kids that otherwise maybe not be interested in art and I think that's what makes it so powerful yeah, I think that's the interesting thing. I'm, you kind of hung words around an idea that I did not have them for yet. But usually as art teachers, we often sit in the, in the faculty meeting and go, you know, we're the safety on the football team, right? All kids have a place, but the kids that don't have a place, like art will catch that, right? That's been the historic way. You and I are of a generation, I overlap the older generation a little bit more, but you and I are now this generation of going, no, all kids in this building are artists, right? All of them can express themselves. But what we do find as the, the art teacher that is embracing all of them is that that's where STEM and STEAM can really connect because there are sometimes kids that come into our room who don't like the mess who don't like the what you and I probably relish as the kind of more chaotic feel of the classroom. And that's where those squishy circuits and the scratch coding and the makey makeys and all of those things can come in. And it's interesting because I've never quite, like I said, hung words around that idea of that art isn't this foolproof thing that every kid loves, right? Like I think every kid is an artist inherently in their body, but not every art classroom is going to like, you know, make every kid feel like comfortable in the same way. Like I used to keep a really messy classroom. And, and then one day it occurred to me like, man, there are some kids here who are really struggling with this room because the mess of it is like actually like physically turning them off to my classroom. And, yes. and I had to like really let that sit and go like, yeah, that's not okay. Like, it's not like, Hey, get over it. Cause they weren't just being, um, 
you know, persnickety, they just really were like, this is overwhelming. This is too much visual information for me. So I love that idea of you talking about how even inside of our classroom, we can't become lazy and assume that like every kid gets this, every kid's going to want to do it. Like we can, we have to guide them towards how they can be expressive. And that's some of them, that computer coding, some of them it's through sports, some of it's through all these things, but we can always show them how art can make those experiences even richer. So I love that that you're able to kind of collaborate across that because as you're probably finding once you did that you probably have other teachers going hey can you help me with this project which is much which is much 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 funner it's much a much richer experience than just being the person where they people send you like three kids every other day to ask for your glue gun Right. I wanted to be approached by the math teacher to say, hey, can you help me teach fractions? Like, you got any weird ideas about teaching fractions? Well, yes, I do. But if it's just coming to me and saying, hey, so-and-so said that you could loan us a pack of markers. It's like, "Mm, go tell your teacher that that's not going to happen. You know? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that it's just as important to educate the people in your building um, as it is to, to educate the kids on what the scope of your art program can be. Like, I definitely still get those kind of responses from teachers who I've not made those connections with yet, and they don't really quite understand, you know, we are a valuable resource to them, and vice versa. And we can make those connections, and we can deepen student learning through those. For sure. Now, I hope you're giving yourself the grace of you know, only being somewhere two days a week, it might take you twice as long it does. with, with some of those teachers. So I, just as someone who's done it for a little while, I hope that you're under like that. You don't get like too hard on yourself or those teachers to know that like, do you do Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or do you do every, how does that work? I have a really weird schedule this year. Um, right now I am Monday, Friday okay. at one school. So I, that weekend overlaps, and then I'm Tuesday through Thursday at the other one. Okay. Um, and they're only 10 minutes apart. So for those listeners like that are like, man, that's, that's weird that she has to be back at the one on Friday. So it sounds like they're relatively close. Um, so tell me a little bit about your studio practice and or just your creative practice that, that happens outside of being an art teacher um, that kind of feeds your kind of personal soul, but also like maybe work, works its way back into your classroom. Sure. Um, for starters, for starters, I would say I do keep a sketchbook and I try to take that with me wherever I go and spend some time each week uh, working through that. I will say I don't find that I have as much time as I would love to dedicate to my own practice, but I think that that's something that educators are very familiar with, especially this year. Um, I think a lot, a lot of the reason that I went into teaching and not just a regular BFA in studio arts was because I could never really lock down what media I loved most. Like I simply couldn't choose. Um, many teachers that I know like shy away from mediums that they don't fully understand and I haven't met a medium yet that I didn't want to try or haven't enjoyed Um, so I think that made me really versatile in my classroom but I've enjoyed everything from resin casting to digital art photography oils acrylics watercolors 
animation, wood, collage, ceramics, yada, yada. I could go on forever. Um, I remember in my classes, sometimes my peers would refuse to like use things like charcoal because they hated being gross. And I would always quote Miss Frizzle and I would say, you know, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. <laughs> um, and I know that like over quarantine, I taught myself like how to do things that I'd never made before. So I had time to myself where I was able to learn new crafts. Like uh, I was wood burning and I taught myself how to needle felt, which was something I never saw myself doing. So there's just so much out there that I can bring back to my students. And I think most of the educators that I know had an emphasis or concentration in college on drawing or painting, which is very applicable to their classroom. But I chose a very strange route and chose to focus on metal studies. So I spent a good portion of my studio time like working on jewelry or blacksmithing furniture or casting trinkets. Um, I even had the chance to like intern for the metals department there and I would help them like co-teach their summer workshops and I got to build forges. Um, so all of those things were really cool and I do spend time on those things in my classroom So why while it might not be hey, we're gonna play with this torch um, I have brought things into my classroom. So we talk about cardboard joinery and um, I do let my students use like hand saws and hand drills in my class and they love 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 it That's usually how I get the ones who don't normally want to talk to me um, and I don't know, I think there's a, a lot of things that I would like to do, especially like I would love to come back and focus on metal, but you really have to have a good studio space to do a lot of the things that I enjoy doing. It's not exactly like a renter friendly hobby, um, but over the summer I was able to start making some like Mokume Gane uh, wedding bands. Um, so. I'm really looking forward to that. That's for me and my fiance. So that was like really meaningful. And we got to make that project together. And um, every time like I have extra money, I'm always going out and buying tools. <laughs> I kind of have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, and I'm still searching for like my style or my niche. So I rarely find myself creating like the same subject matter or using the same materials. And I think that's part of the reason, like, I haven't reached out to, like, exhibit any of my work because rarely does it seem to follow, like, a theme. Um, but I'm hoping that in the future I can do that because I have met some really good local artists and really awesome spaces where I could, I could potentially have my work submitted in a gallery. Um, so I hope to do that in the future when things kind of get a little bit more up and running and people are actually able to attend those sort of events. But I just find myself making whatever is around me. If I have a tool next to me, that's usually what I'm doing. Um, do you know who Bove Lyons is? You know, that does sound like a familiar name, but I'm not sure I know them. So Leticia Bahuyo was one of his graduate students, and she told me one time. Um, so Bove Lyons teaches at um, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and okay. he has, um, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 like pseudonyms and they all create different work 
Okay. So he has a printmaker pseudonym. He has a sculptor pseudonym. He created a body of, he, he, he has a pseudonym for this curator of folk art. And that curator of folk art has collected like 50 different folk artists. And he's also all of the folk artists. Um, and so Letitia's like, yeah, and she liked him a lot. And she's like, yeah, I think Bove just makes up names so he can like try out stuff that he's interested in. And so I wrote down when you were talking, like that you're a habitual explorer, right? Like you are, you are interested. And so, um, I would, I would invite you to consider that that is your style, right? Like that, not having a style that that you might not be able to see it that other people would if you put it all together, that there's probably, um, there, there's probably something there in the way that you approach like the felt stuff, the way you approach that you might not see that others probably are like, Oh yeah, Brickell definitely made that even though it might be a map, you know, or, you know, and then there's a ring over here and then there's like, you know, there's something over here made out of, you know, encaustic or there's something made out of here. So, um, and I'm all for like finding your own style, but I, I don't know. I, I think there's something there to where like maybe your style is just perpetual investigation because it's really interesting. I felt like it goes back to what you said as a kid, right? Like I could make that, right? Like coming back from that kid of like, you know, knowing and, and that weird thing that we learned to not ask our parents for stuff when you were at the store because we don't want them to like, because it, the, the, the anger that would happen or the frustration wasn't really them being mad at me. It was embarrassment that they couldn't get the thing. And so I learned to not ask, right? Or we would have conversations before, like, hey, we're gonna go into this Target, we're buying school supplies, we're not getting any balls or any toys or anything that like light up. And so, and as a kid, like, you know, one, I think just from a creative standpoint to feed your own, like that inner, like, you know, that thirst for learning that you had as a kid, you just made those things. But also I think it's probably like a, that coping mechanism of like, oh, I'm gonna have some toys, right? Like even if I have to make them out of like, you know, bubble gum boogers and like rubber bands, like I'm gonna make some toys. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this thing. You can't stop me from having toys. Like I'm gonna play with stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I just, I just never stopped playing with any of those things. I like that term perpetual investigator. I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Perpetual or habitual or sustainable, like that investigation is just ongoing, right? Like, yeah. like it's just an ongoing thing. I, I, I'm, I don't know why how people stop either. And it's not to say that I'm right or that you're right, just because we share that, like, the curiosity, right? Like that, um, and that I want to do that. Because I have friends that just draw, right? right. They know what pencil they're going to use or they know what pens they use and, and they're, they're dead set. Like I make oil paintings. I interviewed a guy years ago in Jacksonville and he's like, I make oil paintings. I'm an oil painter. And in 10 years, if you come talk to me, I will be making oil paintings. I might be thinking about different stuff. I might be making art about different things, but I will be using oil painting to do that investigation. And that's just how he was. And sure enough, like I followed up with him recently and he's making oil paintings. And he, and, and he loves all different kinds of work and is really interested in all of it. But just for himself, there's just the one. He just wants to be really good at that. And I am much more interested in 
you know, I got into quilling for a little while. Have you div have you dived down that rabbit hole, right? So like, it's so much fun because I'm like, I want to do that. I want to make this really cool paper craft that people did in the 13th century. I really want to do that. So um, I love it that you're that 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 idea of coming coming from a kid and not having those things seems like seems like it has connected and just never stopped that idea of wanting to, to see stuff and do those kinds of things. Um, how does that so far, right? So you're, you're three years in, um, and you could argue that you're really only a year and a half in at each school cause you're only there half time. Um, and I say that not to be, um, like snarky, but like, when you're thinking about projects that you're teaching kids, right? Like, so you have pre-K at one school, they're going to become fourth graders, right? You want to show them a certain amount of things. Do you get caught up in, well, um, I, these pre-K, these fourth graders may learn something completely different than those other fourth graders because I'm a perpetual investigator and that's just how it's going to be. And, or are you like, no, I do need them to know this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. I don't think there's a right answer. I'm just curious where you're at in your head. I think it's a little bit of both. I would say, like, if there are some core concepts and foundational skills that I know at this level, this is appropriate for them to learn. And they are going to need this moving forward. But that being said, I don't think I've... In the time that I've been teaching, I don't think I've repeated a project. So, you know, how we apply that knowledge is going to be totally different every time we do it. Yeah, I, I know that there are some old-time art teachers out there that's brains just were like, what? She's never repeated a project? Um, how does she get good at the project? How do you, you know, but it sounds like that... Um, that you know, for you as someone who needs that exploration, and you probably do variances on things or learn things along the way, and I'm going to do this this time because I didn't do it that the way that I should have done it the last time. But also, I do think it, I do know I think an increasing amount of art teachers who um, just do a bunch of new stuff each time, right? Like it, they've realized that's the thing that's going to keep them um, connected is that they can't do the same project each time with all of the different kids. Um, have we, go ahead. And burn me out so quickly. If right. I was doing yeah. Thing. And, and I, and I think one of the things too, that's really important, uh, Brickell, while, while we're talking about this, cause I really do want other art educators to listen to this. Um, if what Brickell is doing would drive you crazy, it's not for you in your classroom. If you have, Hey, these really great projects. And you know, I have, um, I interviewed someone at the beginning of this process, a couple in, and she's one of the best teachers who have ever been in her classroom, um, Jennifer Lamb at, at Spring Hill High School. And she has projects that she has done over and over for 20 years, but only if it's a good project. Like she, at the end of each project, she, at the, she does it for the end of each one. She gives them like basically like a Google Forms and ask for feedback. And if the project isn't working for her kids, it either gets modified or it gets kicked out. And so if she is redoing projects, it's because they still are consistently working. But if it doesn't work anymore, even if she loves it, she's like, man, I, I had to stop a project, you know, at one point that I loved, but my kids didn't and it had to go. And she realized, well, that was a project for me. I can make that project anytime I want. But if it's not helping my kids communicate 
or learn a specific technique that I think is valuable. So um, I think it's great that you've learned and not allowed um, that other information in of people saying, hey, you're going to get burned out on that. Like you can't, you can't do that sustainable. You can't do that sustainably. Um, sure you can. You can teach a different project every, you know, like if that's what you love to do, that's how that's going to work. And um, I just think that that's really, really interesting. Um, did we miss anything from the pre-interview that we've talked about a lot of stuff um, before we go into the grateful section of our, um, oh, I do want to ask you something. So you didn't have any electricity until you were nine years old in your home. Right. So how, how much of your fascination with tools, right? Like wood burning, those kinds of things. I'm not trying to be a, a psychologist here. I'm just, the, the curiosity, like, did you come home and you kind of did your thing? Like, did you notice it because you were so young? No, I was completely oblivious uh, that all of my friends were going home and watching TV every day instead of, like, going out into their garage with a hammer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was definitely unaware, um, blissfully unaware. Sure, yeah, and, I, and I've... I've I, when I, the reason I asked that is it, we had electricity, but the way I grew up is so different from the way my kid has grown up. Um, we were, I had a two hour bus ride to school and back to school. So a four hour commute as a five year old. And I didn't know any different. And so you just, it was a, you just like, you just wild away the time on the bus. Like sometimes you'd just stare out the window for 30 minutes at a time, you know, just looking at the hillside and, rural, like the most rural county in Tennessee, you know? Um, so I was just curious about that. All right. So where, before I forget, where can people find out more about you online? Do you have an Instagram page, a Twitter page? Yeah. What is uh, I think my Instagram page would probably be the best place to contact me if you were trying to reach out or just see what I'm doing in my classroom. Um, I do try to post pretty regularly and that would be, uh, art underscore with underscore miss deck and it's ms dot d e k sure and i'll make sure and tag that in the in the notes i'll be able to put that for sure there so people don't have to write it down it will be in the in the episode notes all right so um gratefulness is i think kind of on lots of people's mind right now it's something that i've dived into just because of a book club i was in and so I've started asking this question at the end of each episode. Um, and so it's like grateful for an object and a place and a thing. And before we get to thing, I want to make sure that I am protective of Brukel for all of her friends and family listening to this. I've caught her um, on the spot. So if she doesn't mention you as the person that she's grateful for, I'm sure she's grateful for all of her family members and all of her friends. And so um, let's start with an object. Okay, well, I would say this year more than any other, coffee has been my favorite thing, um, and it is absolutely what gives me the energy to teach 1,350 kids, so that is something I'm very, very grateful for. So I normally don't dig into the, the object, I just listen to it, but I have to know. Tell us a little bit about your coffee routine. Are you a... 
Like I have a Mr. Coffee Maker, do you have a French press? Like what's the, like how does coffee get made? What's the quality level? Like tell us about the coffee. So it definitely varies morning to morning depending on how quickly uh, I roll out of bed. But I have like six different utensils in my house for making coffee. And then last year I was actually, um, I told myself I needed to do some self-care. So I went and I bought a coffee pot for both of my rooms. And that has definitely saved my life a number of times. Um, So it really, it's all over the place. I am between schools as well, and I did the same thing. I bought the little tiny little Mr. Coffee Maker for one. There was one that's a shared space that no one really uses, so I can like, and I do decaf, which I know is makes me a, an oddball, but um, so, but it is really important that for, and I got it on sale for fourteen ninety nine. So I was like, that's right. it, and it's it's like so valuable to me that I can do my own coffee. All right, so um, coffee is what your object. Uh, what's a place that you're grateful for? So I've talked about it a lot during this interview, but I would probably say the Appalachian Center for Craft because I really think that that was the place that kind of set me on my path. Um, And I met artists from all over the world and just being able to hear their perspectives and learn about all of these different um, forms of art that don't normally get talked about in traditional art classrooms like glass blowing and things like that. that was really, really a great experience that I don't think I would ever be able to trade. Robert Fichter, who studied with the famous photographer Jerry Yulesman, and Robert Fichter has this kind of own level of fame that he was at uh, University of Florida. Jerry Yulesman essentially was doing Photoshop by mixing, um, you know, uh, mixing negatives together before anyone else was doing it and got these incredible images. And then Photoshop came and everyone could do it. But there was a time when Jerry Yulesman's photographs were, were really like, like kind of just, you know, people had really intense, people either loved him or hated him, but he definitely had this huge fan base. And Robert Fichter studied with him and, and he came to University of Memphis when I was there. And he looked over the edge of his glasses, and he had a really peculiar way of speaking. He said, the oldest is always the newest, my dearies. And I always think about that when I think about craft and how we separate it somehow from art and how, like, learning how to blow glass or do metal work and and that that's somehow not as good as abstract painting or... Um, the sound art or, you know, these kind of newer, like emerging kinds of technologies, because those things were at once emerging technologies themselves. And, but I do think that it is interesting, you know, living in kind of a, the era of hipsters is like the old things become really cool again. And I think that those crafts are so cool and they're cool because, you know, you need fire to make them and you need like time to make them, right? Like they're, the Appalachia okay. Center for the Craft is the opposite of the phone that I'm holding in my hand that's instantly going to put this podcast online. It is like, hey, you got to slow down. You know, my friend Ken McMillan, who taught ceramics at University of North Florida, he loved to cook and he said, my favorite recipe starts this way. On the first day. <laughs> right. You know? The often do take the most time and the most effort. Sure, but we when people say recipe, the, you know, if they're trying to get you to, like, they don't think you're going to do it, they're like, oh, no, 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 it, 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 it only takes 30 minutes. You know, and Ken's favorite recipe is on the first day. 
Um, and so I, I love that, that, that the Appalachia Center for Craft, that, that going back to that, those older things, which can teach us so much, right? And kids, like you said, those kids in our class who a, a handsaw, right? That's in a, in a hand drill, like that those things feel like these magical things, right? And, you know, I feel like that's a whole level of, you know, we refer to kids as like, oh, he's my so-and-so and she's my so-and-so. I feel like carpenters need to be added to that list because so many, so many kids have such a specific response to the tools of building um, that, you know, that that is definitely a way to pull them into, um, pull them into class. Um, like I let a kid take a, a, a tape measure apart today in class. And he's a, uh, and we were, it just happened to be in my collection. It had broken of all my found object stuff and we were working and he, he started picking at it with a, 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 a pair of scissors and I handed him a screwdriver and he's like, oh, I can take it apart. And I'm like, sure. And he stayed busy and would not have stayed busy. Um, but he stayed busy for 20 minutes doing that. All right. So a person that you're grateful for. Well, that is a really tough question. And I am going to quickly throw in a secondary person because I feel like I really need to give him a shout out because I think without um, the music teacher at my base school at Smith, um, I really don't think I would have had such a very strong first year. He was definitely like always in my corner and making sure I got all my paperwork filled out and anything that arose that that you know, two schools of information and emails that wasn't making it my way, he was always there for me. So that would be Dustin Dotsler. Um, and then the person that I say is probably the most, I'm most grateful for my fiance. And I think that's because he has always been my strongest support. So like, my schools even know him and they thank him because he stays after and he helps me hang up artwork and he always puts away the chairs after the meeting. So he's a big part of my life as a teacher too. And he helps me work through my ideas and he wakes up and makes me coffee when I forget to. So definitely him. <laughs> Man, that's the second week in the row of like two really strong partners supporting the women in their lives. So it's making me feel tiny bit better about about men in the world um to know that there are two guys out there that are supporting really um supporting the the women in their lives and the teachers who are doing such valuable work in their schools so that's really awesome um Brickell, thank you so much for being on our podcast today i am super excited i'm super impressed and i'm super inspired and the word that you used a lot in the podcast is encouraged like that you were, you know, when encouragement was lacking, when encouragement was present. And it's very clear. And if no one's told you, you're clearly making up for those, that lack of encouragement that you missed. And you're doing such a great job at it. I'm so, so excited to kind of get connected to you. And I'm looking forward to following your career. And I just appreciate the work you're doing there in Hamilton County. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. And for our listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of The Art of Outreach. Thank you, Mike.